Thank you, Pastor Henry. And it is a joy to be here. Uh, but after uh, six, five years or so, but and thank the missions committee for extending the opportunity of being able to join you. Um, yeah, it, it, it's uh, 2013 was the last time I was here uh, when uh, Pastor Alton went through his ordination and then stayed on for, uh, you know, worshiping with you. So thank you for your partnership. And my wife says, get to it. <laughs> so if you know what it means to be married, you always listen to your wife. <laughs> so let's go ahead and bow in prayer together. Father, um, we thank you for the fellowship, partnership that we have in the gospel and for fellowship uh, with one another through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for this church, for the witness they have, for the light that they are in the San Francisco Bay Area. And thank you now that we have an opportunity as we open your word, even as we spend time uh, around the table of the Lord, to be reminded of the awesome work that he has done uh, for us to bringing about our redemption. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I think a uh, question that I like to raise this morning is uh, the question of whether God is at work in this world. And if he is at work, why is there so much violence, uh, instability, terrorism? And if God is in at work in the world, why doesn't he do something about the things I've mentioned, along with injustice and deception and wickedness? Okay. That's maybe out there, but what about here? What about with us? Is God at work in his church? And obviously we have to take the words of what Jesus said. You know, I will build my church and even the gates of hell will not prevail against her. And yet we know that there are churches that divide. There are churches that don't get along with each other. One of our own staff people, sadly, the church has... Uh, has uh, broken up in terms of the senior pastor leaving and, and a group of people have left with him, leaving a very skeletal uh, congregation, and he carries on that work. And last Thursday he was sharing that he's, he's disillusioned, he's discouraged, and he's angry at what has happened. And yet, is God at work in the church with all that's taking place? I think as a, a Bible church, we all affirm you know, the sovereignty of God, that God is in control, you know, and yet things seems to be out of control. And we affirm the providence of God that nothing happens by chance. Nothing is incidental, let alone accidental. As one author has said, there is no such thing as a radical molecule in the program of God. You know, nothing takes God by surprise. And yet, is God at work? Well, it's one thing to know this in our head. It's another thing to experience it. And that's why I like to take you to the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. An old book by an Old Testament prophet. We're all familiar with it. I'm going to presume a few things that you have read through the book of Jonah uh, before. If not, maybe you're invited or challenged from this message to read it. Many of you have heard messages from the book of Jonah. And this morning, I'd like to give you a large bird's-eye view of this book as I try to unpack it and bring it across 
to us uh, today. But I want to clearly say that the book of Jonah shows that God is at work. And he's at work in the circumstance of his day, even as he is at work today. Jonah comes out of a period of time in Israel's history under King Jeroboam II around 750-760 B.C. And it was in the time of the Assyrian Empire. As the book opens in chapter 1, we're familiar that it opens with disobedience. And then when you get to chapter 3, in the first few verses, it seemingly opens with the obedience of Jonah in regards to his call to go. Four chapters are given to us, and it ties around this theme of God is at work. Yes, he is. Okay, He's at work in chapter 1 in pursuing the prophet Jonah. Okay, And that's what we find in the first three verses as we read that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, I want you to rise. I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to go to that great city and call out against it because their evil has come up before me. But what happens? Jonah rose and fled to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. He went down to the seaport of Joppa, which is modern day uh, uh, not Tel Aviv. Uh, yeah, Tel Aviv. Okay, near Tel Aviv. And he paid the fare, went on to that boat, and he went to Tarsus. He went away from the Lord. So, how can you say, Alan, that God is at work when Jonah, instead of obeying God, disobey? He goes the opposite direction that God instructs him to. Well, as we unpack chapter one, we find that God is at work pursuing Jonah. And he does it in these three ways. He does it by appointing a great wind and a storm. That's what we have in verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. At the same time, God also not only arranged the circumstance, but he also arranges the people on that ship. We find in verse 6 what happens. In verse 6, we read about the mariners or the or sailors who are afraid, they cried out to their God. And then also even the captain in verse, uh, verse 5 and now in verse 6. The captain came and said to Jonah, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Okay. In all of this, God is at work pursuing Jonah in the circumstance he's in and even with the people that he is thrown in with. I don't have time to go through all these verses, but I want to come to the end of it. Notice what we pick up in verse 14. It says, Therefore the sailors, the captain, called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us the innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea. The sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceeding, and they offer a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made a vow. And what happens? They turn to the Lord Yahweh. Uh, in the circumstance that Jonah was in, God not only pursues Jonah, but he pursues the people and used the circumstance to pursue Jonah. Here, the people turn to God. Okay. 
And so God is at work through natural as well as supernatural avenues. Okay, to remind us that, uh, that we can be reassured. Even as a pastor, when the sheep doesn't seem to be following the shepherd, when the people are not obeying God's word, uh, when uh, there is carnality in the church or selfishness or unforgiveness, that we need to believe, we need to have the conviction that God is a God who's at work. We may not see it visibly, but he is there acting and doing something. Which leads us into chapter 2. Secondly, we find that God is not only uh, uh, pursuing, but God is at work saving. We need to pick up uh, from chapter 2 that it begins really at the end of chapter 1, verse 17, where the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Notice once again, God is at work. What does he do? He appoints a great fish, just as he appointed a wind and a storm. Okay, And as he appoints that fish to swallow Jonah, notice at the end of chapter 2 what happens. The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out into the dry land. And everything in between is a prayer that is given by Jonah. And as we read this prayer, and I have details to go into it, time to go into the detail, we find that it is a prayer of hope. It's a prayer of hope drawn much from the book of Psalms. And look at verse 4, where it says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I will look again upon your holy temple. Then also in verse 6, it says, I went down into the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And then finally, Also in verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope in steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you for what I will vow I will pay because salvation belongs to the Lord. God is at work in saving Jonah because he does place hope in Yahweh. And I want you to notice a few things. One is maybe the issue of this story about a fish swallowing a man, that it is more of a fairy tale, it's more of a fable. And yet the answer I give to you is it's not a fable because God is a God who does great and mighty things. He's no respecter of our limited understanding of who he is. He does what he wants. Okay. And another issue might be how can a man be in a the belly of a fish three days and three nights and still be alive without oxygen or air. Well, let me put it another way. How can a man who's dead in the belly of a fish be resuscitated back to life? Okay. And once again, we need to step back and see that we have a God who's at work, who's far bigger, greater than you and I. And you may be here uh, seated and coming as a visitor or have come for a long time, and you don't necessarily believe in God uh, as the Bible depicts him. But I want to say if we do have a God that is at work and he's greater than our circumstance and our situation then he's also a God who's able to save us in our sinful state. 
One final thing, too, is it's interesting that this passage, especially verse 17 of chapter 1, is used by Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 as he talks about his resurrection from the dead, where he says he is in the belly of the earth or in the earth for three days and three nights, and yet he rises from the dead. And so this isn't just a fairy tale story. Jesus substantiates historically that this happens. Jesus also shows the unity of the Old Testament and the New Testament as he draws from this passage here. Thirdly, we find as we get to chapter 3, God is not only at work in pursuing, God is not only at work in saving, but now God is at work giving Jonah a second opportunity as well as saving the city and the people of Nineveh. God is at work giving Jonah a second opportunity. For we read in verses 1 to 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I'll tell you. So Jonah rose, went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And when you read that, it ought to push you back to chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Because that was the first time Jonah had the opportunity of obeying God. But he disobeyed. And here he has a second opportunity as the word of the Lord came to him this second time. God is a God who gives us not just second opportunities, but numerous opportunities in our lives. And why is that? Because God isn't finished with us as he mows and shapes us more and more into Jesus Christ. Uh, Right now, uh, Bev and I are in uh, remodeling of our home. Uh, And in the remodeling, we have learned that God isn't finished with either of us because he's testing us in our patience. He's testing me in the area of all the details and needs to go into a remodeling of a house. And Bev is much more detailed than I am. And I said, whatever, it's fine, it's okay. She says, no, it can't be done. And we just put in a, uh, a faucet in our kitchen, and it doesn't retract back, and she wants to send it back. And I said, well, it's okay. You can push it up. It'll stay there. And, and so God's not finished with us. He's not finished with you and I in this area of giving us numerous opportunities of shaping and forming us in the area of our obedience, our submission to him, of forgiving people and accepting forgiveness from others, of learning that when it comes to failure, that God still wants us to find our victory in Jesus Christ. The second thing in chapter 3 is that God is at work in saving the people of Nineveh. That's what you have as you continue to read in verse 4 down to verse 9, where it says, Jonah began to go into the city. Going a day's journey, he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the greatest of them is found in verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne. He removed his robe covered himself with sackcloth, sat on ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. 
And it was a decree that was given. And the whole city repented, relented, and turned to God. And it wasn't destroyed. You have to have a, 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 a little bit of background, understanding of the city of Nineveh. It's not only a great city, at the capital city. It's a city that would take three days' journey to walk around. And there's a debate whether Jonah walked around the city or walked through the city. Okay? But more importantly, it is a city that is a fortified city. It's believed in ancient times, as they dug up archaeology, that the, the city wall was enough, wide enough to have chariots race on it, where two chariots with the horses would compete going down okay, uh, the city, city wall. That's, that's how wide it was. And how high it was, it is believed to be about uh, close to eight, uh, one-eighth of a mile high. So you measure it out. I found it to be 35 meters Okay, so it's quite high, quite wide, quite fortified from the enemies of that time. Not only that, the city of uh, Nineveh was a populated city. We don't see the population here, but if you go to the end of chapter 4, it states that there are 120,000 children. And if you multiply that with a father or a mother, maybe another child, you're going to have over half a million people in that city. Okay, which is, uh, you know, quite substantial during the ancient Near East period of time. It's also, uh, Nineveh is also the capital of the great Assyrian Empire, okay, of the 8th century. And here were some things that were written uh, by some of their own Assyrian kings. Ashurbanipal II said he stormed the mountain peaks. He took them in the midst of the mighty mountain. He slaughtered them. With their blood, he dyed the mountain red like wool. The heads of their warriors were cut off, and I formed them into a pillar over against their city. And their young men and their maidens I burned alive. In fact, one of the recording of their kings was that they literally took babies or infants and smashed them against the wall. That's how violent they were. That's how oppressive they were. And today, you know, we have examples in different countries and nations that would be uh, charged with human rights violation. You think of the country of North Korea. In the recent two weeks and the incident that happened in releasing one of their captives and came back and then in a few days he had died. Or you think of the recent gassing that was released, you know, by Assyria uh, among its own people. You know, these violation of human rights and just the cruelty that is demonstrated. Well, transfer that of today back then to Assyria. And that's the picture you have, okay? It is the prophet Nehemiah, I'm sorry, Nahum, who ultimately predicts the doom of the city as well as the Assyrian Empire by the Babylonians in 7th century B.C., But what I want you to see is this. The humbleness that was expressed when when the king says, who knows, in verse 9, God may turn and relent, turn from his fierce wrath so that we may not perish. When you read those words, you have uh, humbleness. 
you have a sense of throwing yourself at the mercy of a holy and righteous God. And how does God respond? We find in verse 10, the end of this chapter. God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God is at work saving even the people of Nineveh. And as he does so, he relents from the judgment he would bring. Now this might cause some theological issues or struggles with you. How can a God who's characterized in one way change and be characterized in another way? Don't we believe in a God who's unchanging? Okay. If you're theologically astute, you need to see that it isn't that God changes his character or his personhood, but rather God does change his plans. And oftentimes from our human perspective, we don't know the plans of God until it is unfold to you and I. We don't know his will for you and I until it's unfolded to us. And then we can look back and it says, this is God's will. In the meantime, we learn to walk and trust by faith that God has a plan that is good, that's acceptable, and that is working out, you know, for his purpose. Maybe a more, uh, uh, another issue uh, is more practical. Oftentimes, people who are missionaries would come, and they would preach from Jonah, even as I'm doing. And they would say that from Jonah, we have the greatest revival in the city of Nineveh. And it's true, we do. And we have a great missionary port that we can give to the people, that when the gospel is given to pagans, and it's delivered in such a way that they realize their lost condition, then there's a great reaping or a harvesting of souls for the kingdom of God. You know, while that is a good purpose of the book of Jonah, I do not see that that is the purpose of the author of the book of Jonah that's given to us. And the reason I ask that question is, why have chapter 4? Why have chapter 4? If the purpose of the book is to see the revival of the people of Nineveh and to see the obedience of Jonah being carried out in chapter 3, why have chapter 4? Because you notice how it opens in chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Okay? And that word displeased conveys the thought of evil, okay? Okay, Jonah was exceedingly displeased, okay, and he was angry. And uh, as you look at this uh, chapter and, and as we begin to unpack it, there, there's a real problem with the heart of Jonah, a real problem with the messenger, not the message. The message is clear, but the messenger, not clear. For as we read on, look at what it says in verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not 
this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarsus, because I know that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, I want you to take my life, okay? For it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord comes back and says, do you do well or do you have a right to be angry? So what's that issue here? The issue at here is a problem of Jonah's heart, which is similar to all of us. The issue with us, we have a heart condition. I want to draw three things as God is at work in changing his heart. And this morning, when the word of God goes out, whether it be in a Sunday school classroom or a Bible study or in a message, you know, given by one of your pastors, the aim isn't just to challenge us. It isn't just to tickle us. It isn't like Hendrix said to us when we were students in his class. It's not out to, 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 to give us truth. It's out to transform us by that truth. And if you walk out of here not having that heart change or transformation, then there's a problem that is similar to Jonah. He was first of all displeased with what God was pleased with. What is God pleased with? Well, he is pleased to show his mercy, his grace, his steadfast love. In other words, he is pleased to extend salvation to the most evil of people that you can imagine back then and even today. Secondly, Jonah was pleased to what? End his life. The only remedy to my life and my situation is Take my life. And it isn't according to that hymn, take my life and let it be. It's take my life and I want to get out of here. Okay. He's still having the same heart attitude in chapter 4 as he has in chapter 1. Running from God. Okay. Thirdly, his displeasure leads him to what? Anger. In fact, God says in verse 4, do you do well to be angry? Okay. He doesn't answer that here. But in verse uh, 9, what do we say? God says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And in this case, it's for the plant. The implication is, do you do well to be angry over the salvation of the people of Nineveh? And in verse 9, do you do well to be angry over the death of a plant? And you know what he said? Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to even die. Boy, talk about a heart problem with this prodigal prophet. Those three things pose this chapter together. And the reason why I love uh, the book of Jonah, having gone through it this year four times and then discovering that my son will be leading a, a study in the book of Jonah with the guys group on Wednesday 
And then my brother-in-law, who's doing a Sunday school class teaching on the book of Jonah, is because the emotional anger and the heart of Jonah is something I can identify with. God can handle my anger. Okay? Someone else may not be able to, but God can. Because God is God, and he's at work. Secondly, is that we see the heart of God come across. Okay, it's already mentioned in chapter 4, verse 2, but now it comes across, starting in verse 5, as Jonah sits outside of the city, what does God do? He brings three object lessons to this person, Jonah. And as we read about these three object lessons, notice in verse 6, there's an appointed plant. Okay. Followed by an appointed worm in verse 7. Finally, followed by an appointed scorching east wind. As God has a work, he sure is. Just as he appointed these three object lessons, a plant, a worm, and an east wind, he also appointed the storm and the wind as well as the fish. This book is about God being at work. We ask sometimes, who's the main character in the book of Jonah? If you ask a kid, he would say the fish. If you ask a teenager or an adult, it'll be Jonah. This morning, as you go out of here, who's the main character of the book of Jonah? It's God. And if you don't see God, then you're missing the point of the message of the book of Jonah. So God takes these three lessons and uses it as a means to show that he is actively involved, not a passive. That he is not silent, but he is there to show himself. And what is he exposing in Jonah's heart? Okay, three things. And this morning he may be exposing the same in our hearts as well. Are you more concerned about the plants that are in your life than about people in your life. What are the plants? Well, it could be your hobbies. It could be your 401k. It could be your retirement. It could be whatever. Are they wrong? No. Is the plant wrong for Jonah? No. But the point is, what's the priority? People or plants? I remember one person, uh, I think he, he had invited a seminary professor to his house, had dinner, and then he said, I want to show you something. He brings him into his study room, and he shows him a glass display of all the collection that he has of these little trinkets that he's collected. Okay. And he says, that's my pride and joy. Your pride and joy may be you know, the train set that you have built over these many years. Your pride and joy may be the collection of these artifacts or whatever it may be. Your pride may be, you know, just collecting this and that or going here and there. Okay. More concerned about a plant or with people. Secondly, are you more concerned with personal comfort than the condition, the lost condition of people? Jonah was more concerned. He was hot under the collar. The plant covered him. 
until the worm came and ate the plant, and then he was exposed to the heat of the sun along with the east wind that was a scorching-type east wind. He was more concerned about the personal comfort that he got from the plant when it shaded him than he is about the condition of the loss in the, in the city of Nineveh. Third thing is, he was still sitting outside the city because his concern is on the condemnation or the judgment of God and on the compassion and mercy of God. Okay. We live in a real world. And there are times when we read in the news or see in the media, you know, uh, terrorism, wicked people doing things. And our hearts are just crushed. And we say to God, God, why don't you do something? Why don't you judge them? Why don't you pour out your wrath on them? And, and, and it's, it's right to ask that. If you were living in the time of World War II under the situation with Hitler, you know, I'd probably do the same and say the same. But at the same time, the other balance is, do you also have the compassion and the mercy of God to pray in that way? Recently, in uh, this year, on Palm Sunday, there was a bombing that took place in two churches in Cairo, Egypt. ISIS claim the uh, made claim to the attacks, with over 50 people dying, over 100 people that were injured. The next day, on April 10th. One of the pastors of the church stood up and gathered the congregation in the burned out, bombed out church. And he said to them, we want to say to you that are gathered here, not just the believers, but all the people who saw what happened. We want to say thank you. We want to say thank you very much, but you won't believe. Believe us when we say, why will we say thank you? Let me tell you why. Because you gave us the opportunity, the greatest honor to, to have, which is as Christ was crucified for his faith and he died and was slaughtered, this is our faith as well. You gave us and you gave them the opportunity to die for the honor of Christ. And we want to thank you for that. Secondly, we want to thank you because you shorten our journey in this life. What? Someone who heads home, particularly maybe to a city, would, would be asking, when are we going to get home? When are we going to arrive? Are we there yet? Well, can you imagine if in an instant he finds himself uh, at his destination because his life was taken? You have shortened the journey for us. So thank you for shortening that journey. I think, if anything, we want a long journey. We want to live long. Okay, But to think in this way, thirdly, we want to thank you because you gave us the opportunity to fulfill what Christ said, which is, uh, I send you out among, uh, I send you out as lambs among wolves, okay, and we are the lambs, and we come with faith, and we come with the church to convey to you the message. We have no weapons to hide, okay, we come here to fulfill God's calling for us. So we want to thank you for helping us because in this gathering are more people that would have never entered into a gathering like this 
if this didn't happen. And I found that to be very true time and time again in many memorial service. People won't enter into a church. And when it comes to a funeral service or memorial service, they come. And that's an opportunity to present the gospel. And we can thank God for that. Secondly, besides thanking them, this pastor said, we want to say we love you. Okay, We love you because this is the teaching of Christ. And I want to explain this to you because you may not understand it. Christ said, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? But I say to you, you love your enemies. We Christians don't have enemies. Instead, others make us enmity. Okay? We, uh, others make us enmity with them. Christians doesn't make enemies because we are commanded to love one another. So we love you because that's the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. So no matter what you do to us, we're going to love you. And finally, besides thanking you and loving you, we want to say we want to pray for you. Because Christ says, blessed are those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So I'm here to say that my God asks me to pray for you. Isn't that something? When it comes to truly having that type of heart, the heart of God, to be able to express that. As we come to the end of Jonah chapter 4, what do we have? We end the book with a question. The question is found in verse 11. Should not I have pity or mercy? Okay, or should not I pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right from their left and also much cattle. Why end it this way? With a question. It ends with a question because it forces us It pushes us to ask ourselves that question as well. Do I have mercy? Do I have pity like God has pity? Do I have compassion like God have compassion? Because God is at work. He wants to shape his heart of compassion and mercy and love into my heart today. You know, I'm a parent of three kids. Like many of you, our parents, maybe your grandparent. And don't we all want to raise good kids? Who wants to ever raise a bad kid? We want to raise kids that are obedient, studious, non-rebellious, okay? Follow what we say. That's our aim. But I dare say, if you go out of here and ask a parent in the neighborhood, what kind of kids would you want to raise? They'll say the same thing. So what's the difference between inside and outside? The difference is, I don't want to be a parent just to raise good kids. I want to raise godly kids. Kids that have a hunger for God, that has a heart for God, that desire to obey. Not just outwardly, but inwardly. If you've never read the book by uh, Tripp on shepherding your child's heart, that's the book you need to read as parents. Because in our earlier stage, as we... Um, raised our children. We didn't do it with a shepherding type heart. We wanted our kids to conform to our instructions. And if they didn't, they experienced the consequences. 
But in that book, it's more than just raising good kids. It's raising godly kids. And that should be our aim as well as parents. But that's also our aim in our lives as well. Let me say it in this way. I can say it because I'm a pastor or I'm a preacher. It's possible to have a preacher's, pastor's heart, but not have the heart of God in our pastoring and preaching. Have you ever seen pastors that, that pastor, but they don't have God's heart in their pastoral ministry? Or they preach, but they don't have the heart of God in their preaching? I have. In fact, I was in Nepal, and I was listening to one person preaching in an international service, a gathering. And I can tell, t- eh, something is about it in his heart. So I went to my close friend, a Nepalese pastor, and I said, you know, I went to hear so-and-so. Um, I kind of detect that, you know, the, that he needs to grow in a pastoral heart. And his response, having pastored for 20-plus years, said, yeah, I'm aware of that, and I agree with you. You know, it's possible even to have a church, SFBC, with all the programs, wonderful programs, as I was just looking at, you know, your bulletin. But you know what? It is possible to not have God's heart in those church programs as well. And when you do that, what happens? You run a machine. Church becomes machinery. Is that how God operates? Is that the type of God we have? A God who is robotic? Or is it a God who has a compassionate, merciful heart? Okay. Like that song says, God, change my heart. Make it ever true. Change my heart. May it be like you. Because you're the potter, I am the clay. So mold me and make me. This is what I pray. As I come to a close... What's one application out of many that I can make? Well, I think one is, if God is at work, how's he working in your heart regarding the peoples of this city, of the greater San Francisco Bay Area? We have your Chinatown, you have your Japanese town, you have your Italian district, you have your Russian district, you have your uh, LGBTQ community People who are not like you and I. And yet, these are people who need the gospel as well. Isn't that true? That was one of the issues with Jonah. They don't deserve the gospel. They don't deserve God's salvation. Look at how they treat us. At least we as a nation of Israel is not as bad as they are. And if you have that attitude, that's not the heart of God. Okay? And as God gets your attention, you know, one of the challenges is asking God to help you step out of your comfort zone, stepping out of your safe zone into the battle zone of where your faith, your, your love, and the truth of the gospel is tested. Okay. It's great. You know, San Francisco has been around for, what, longer than I have been a Christian. And that's a testimony you know, of God's faithfulness. But if you're going to be around for the next generation, I hope you're passing on to that next generation how God is at work shaping not only their hearts, but your hearts as well to become like the heart of God. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for reminding us of the great and awesome purpose that you have. That at the end of the corridor of time, when we enter into the eternity, that you will have every tribe, tongue, nation, and people gathered around the throne of Christ, worshiping him, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Because he's the one who redeemed a people for his own. He is the one who brought about the salvation which only he can accomplish. And thank you that we are part of that huge crowd. But we also know that Jesus said that there are many others who are not of this fold and they need to be brought in. May you use us as channels, whether here in the local community or whether out there in the world to continue to carry out the good news of Christ because that's your heart. That's your desire. So help us to align our heart's desire so that we can bring you the greatest delight and the greatest joy because that's why we're here. You know, it's possible that you have come in and maybe you've heard many messages and maybe this morning God may have been speaking to you about your clear need of Jesus Christ and to fathom the reality that Christ came into the world to die in your place a Savior's death for you as a sinner. Yeah, you may not be as evil as the people of the time of Nineveh or Assyria, but we all fall into that same category. We are all sinners. We fall short of God's glory. And if God has tugged on your heart and convicted you and pricked you, not just on the aspect of your sin, but on the aspect of the Savior's love and compassion as demonstrated through Jesus Christ, I ask that you will speak to maybe one of the pastors or one of the leaders here or one of your friends and find out the good news of Jesus Christ. And we say thank you to God for that. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.